The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. I want you to remember a time when you were waiting for something big to happen something that was going to change your life forever as you knew it. I want you to think about all the emotions that you were feeling in anticipation. Perhaps it was something good. Perhaps it was something bad. So I think as we have now entered 2022, this is a a big year for Christina and I, I will graduate school finally after a very, very long time. No, seriously, it's been like 11 years. And that's just post-secondary. But also, we're excited to welcome a child into our life. So these, these moments, these things, they are going to change our lives forever. People have been sure to tell me that having a baby definitely changes everything. But they're good. And there's something that you're excited, you're waiting, you're filled with expectation. You begin to think about what things will look like on the other side, but like graduating having a kid, you cannot really know until you fully arrive there. The best you can do is dream. I think for many of us, we could all agree that we are waiting for the end of the pandemic. I could really hear it in George's prayer this morning, this impassioned plea of God to bring about the end of what has been a very long two years so far, with not too much sign of it ending anytime soon or quickly. We've spent two years praying for God to bring about healing and restoration, to end this pandemic, to allow things to return to some semblance of normalcy, for us to operate how we used to, without masks, restrictions, social distancing, no more online school. And for two years, we have prayed to God for liberation, to fulfill his promise of restoration for all things. And of course, this goes far beyond the pandemic, our cry to God in hopeful expectation of better things to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's been the church's prayer for 2,000 years. Waiting, waiting, waiting. This morning, I want us to spend a little bit of time in the Isaiah passage that was read for us this morning. For at this point in the book of Isaiah, these are a people in exile. The people of Judah have spent generations in the city of Babylon, in captivity, taken from their own land, living among a people that is not their own, where people worship gods that are not their own, speaking languages that are not their own. People in exile waiting for God to fulfill his promise to bring them home. And so these words from the prophet Isaiah are meant for hope because these are a people calling out to God for deliverance. And we can get a sense of what these prayers might look like and perhaps use them as a model for our own prayers and our own waiting. For we read in Psalm 39, verse 12, the psalmist writes, he says, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. 
I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. There's a sense here. And I would imagine that the people that are reading these words from Isaiah have this similar sense of, God, are you not listening? Do you not hear? Do you not care? We haven't heard from you in a while. Speak to us. Let us know how things are going. You must know what's going on. Tell us something. And I think for the past number of years, we may have felt a similar silence. We certainly have heard a lot from our politicians, but maybe not as much from God as we would want. And so here, we enter into the words of the prophet Isaiah, taking our own sense of waiting and longing and expectation and using that to sort of get into the minds of the Jewish people who have been waiting in exile, waiting for things to return to normal far longer. And so God speaks, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. God speaks to them and says, I have heard you. I have listened. I know your situation. I know what is going on. I know the deepest desires of your hearts. And I will not withhold my voice from you anymore. I will not remain silent. The sense that God gives to the people of Judah is that he is now committed to ceaseless action. No more will he seem far and distant and removed. He has come close, speaking intimately to them. I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a torch. The nations will see your vindication, all the kings your glory. For perhaps the people of Israel, the people of Judah living in exile, the other nations would simply look at them and scoff and say, your God cannot be that powerful. He did not protect you in your time of need. He did not stop you from being taken into exile. You now dwell outside of your land. You dwell in Babylon now, where their gods are strong. God has ignored you. Or perhaps your God is just not strong enough. Your God is powerless. He cannot defeat your enemies. But God says, absolutely not. For God, in his commitment to ceaseless action on behalf of the people of Judah, he will lift them up. The nations will see your vindication. All kings, your glory. This is going to be a very public display, a very public action of God. His justice will be on full display, something that the whole world will recognize from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. Kings in their palaces, seemingly far removed from the day-to-day -day of the Jewish people, they will take notice of what God is going to do. No one will be able to turn a blind eye. God is going to step in. He's going to break the cycle of suffering that his people have long endured in their captivity, break their chains, return them home. God has not forgotten them. In this glory he speaks of, this splendor, this vindication, it's going to be made apparent by a change in their situation. For he continues in verse 3, and he says, You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem on the hand of your God. These are great words for a people living in bondage, a people that are under the thumb of an oppressor, 
they, the lowest of the low in their society, are going to be lifted up as a crown in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem. They are going to be powerful, glorious, majestic. Kings and queens, they are going to be given a royal identity by virtue of who God is. Their situation will be changed so dramatically, everyone will take notice. And God will mark their new change in identity with a new name. And it's not going to be about what others have called them, deserted, forsaken, desolate. It's not about how others see you, God says. It is not about how the nations that have oppressed you, the nations that surround you and see you in exile, it is not about how they see you. It is not the names that they give to you that you will be known by. It's about a new name, Hepzibah, which means my delight is in her, and Belua, which means married. Their new nature is going to be made by a new name. Right? We all are familiar with nicknames. Many of us have them. Many of us give them. Perhaps going through school, you had a not-so-nice nickname, something that the other kids would tease you with, something that they would use to put you down, and eventually perhaps it became part of your identity. Maybe because they have called me this repetitively, they have put me down, this is who I am. And then maybe you met someone that gave you a better name, that said that that identity is not who you are. The way those kids tease you, the way the people at the office put you down, that is not who you are. We have good names, good nicknames that tell us our value. I call my wife sweetheart or my love. They're relational. They tell how I feel about her, how I view her how good and great and wonderful she is. And God knows the power of these names for his people in Judah. He knows how they have been mocked and oppressed. And so he's going to give them a new name to show this change in identity. They are no longer a poor, exiled people, desolated, deserted, and forsaken. They are royal people whom God delights in, whom he joins himself together with. It is this image of marriage that he then leans into, right? One of their names means to be married. For the Lord will take his delight in you and your land will be married. And the marriage image, especially when applied to this concept of land, is so powerful in the Old Testament. Because in a lot of ancient Near East cultures, for instance, in the Canaanite culture, their god Baal, the storm god, the god of fertility, in a lot of their ritual practices and their stories, Baal is described as being married to the land. And that marriage relationship would bring about the fertility of crops. It would make their land plentiful. It would give them food to eat, and they would be able to live in a fruitful land. Because if Baal, in the Canaanite culture, removed himself from the land, there goes their crops, their cattle, and their land would become desolate. So this marriage is so important for the Canaanite people, so important for all peoples in the ancient Near East, and God leans into this. For we might consider that Israel, living in exile, is emblematic of divorce, and not that God had separated himself from them, but that they separated themselves from God. They pulled their land back from God, and so it came to be this desolate, deserted place. 
and they were taken out of it. They were exiled, further removed from their land. They were not even participating in that relationship. And so God, in his promise to bring them back, bring them back to Jerusalem, bring them back to Zion, that holy mountain, is captured in this marriage image. He's coming back, drawing close to them, knowing them in a way that only a husband and wife can know each other. With these intimate names that celebrate a changed identity. And Isaiah continues. He continues, and I'll read now from verse 6. These are new to us then this morning. He says, I have posted watchmen on your walls. They will never be silent day or night. God continues this theme of constant action, constant watching. He's reminding them that he is never going to be separate from them. He was never going to not pay attention to them. They will never return to exile. They did not even go there in the first place because God is absent. He is always present. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest till he establish Jerusalem and make her the praise of the earth. For the Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain and food to your enemies, and never again will your foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. It's important that God makes it clear who is doing this action. For when we look to these stories of restoration, when we look for stories of deliverance and salvation, for people coming home, being exalted, changed, restored, all these amazing things that we long for in our own life and that the people of Judah were certainly longing for in exile, it is important to know that it is God who accomplished this solely. It is by His power, by His right hand and His mighty arm, it is the strength of God alone that brings about healing that brings about this vindication, this justice, breaking the cycle of destruction. No other actors do we see in this passage from Isaiah. The people of Judah, the exiles, are recipients of God's mighty works. And it should banish their desire to exalt themselves, to think that if they simply work hard enough in Babylon that they can earn the right to be returned to Jerusalem. That if they simply participate as good enough citizens that they can go back to their city and build it up again. Nothing that they do is going to bring about this change of situation. Nothing that they can do can warrant getting this new name. It is by God's power alone. And it is by God's power that their land will become fertile again. We continue with that picture of fertility, that marriage metaphor. He says, but those who harvest will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The idea of plenty, of the land yielding food and drink. We should see this perhaps as a reversal of the Genesis 3 curse. We remember in the garden as we look back at the time of the fall, that God told Adam that part of his curse, his disobedience, would result in the land being frustrated in its ability to yield good food. He would work the ground. It would be hard, back-breaking work. And despite all his best efforts, it would yield thorns and briars. He would struggle always to bring forth food. But God here promises that there will be food to eat, 
There will be grapes to make wine to drink. There will be celebration. There will be fertility, fecundity, a great restoration of the land. And this leads to celebration. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. For this promise culminates in this return home, a place of belonging, a place that you want to live, that you can live well and easily, a place that is plentiful in grain and wine, that has clear roads, bright banners, tall, strong gates, all accomplished by God. For a people living in exile, this is a great message of hope. That God plans to restore them, to bring them home. And we do see some of this. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that God does fulfill his promise and he brings them back. They rebuild the temple, they rebuild their walls and their gates. He brings them home. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to the exiles. And this is a great story. This is a great story of God being honest and true to his promise. But so what? This happened, what, 2,500 years ago? What does this mean to us today? Are we to see ourselves as Jerusalem, the fallen city, Are we to read into our situation that we are the exiles? We must be cautious when we approach these types of texts, these poetic prophecies from the Old Testament, in applying them directly to us, saying that, yes, this is our situation, or yes, even just these are the promises that God has made directly to us, and they will play out exactly in this way. Because if we look to these passages and simply draw out this prosperity, this glory, this vindication, this ruling, we might fall into the trap of the health and wealth gospel, that if we pray to God, he will make us rich and powerful. He will make us kings in a fertile land. But nor do we want to overly spiritualize this passage, think that it is just a metaphor about our souls, about our internal transformation, because God is intimately concerned with the physical things of this world. Perhaps it's really both, or it lies somewhere in between in the nuance of understanding prophecy for us today. Perhaps we might read this as just a piece of an ongoing work of restoration, because of course God did bring them back. They did rebuild the city, right? Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle that and participate in this restoration. But if we really do look through history, we see that it is not quite there yet. Jerusalem never became the city exalted to all the nations. It never became this glorious, royal, ruling city of infinite fertility and celebration. It has never perhaps felt like a city sought after, least of ways not for godly reasons. And so we still wait 
We still wait for the final fulfillment of this promise, and since we have not seen it perfectly fulfilled, it tells us that there is something more to come. But what we can see for sure is that God's character is revealed through this promise. God is committed to act on behalf of his people. God is still committed to you and to me. That has not changed. God is still committed to ceaseless action on behalf of his people, knowing that just as back then we can do nothing to bring about salvation and restoration in our own lives. This is work that only God can do. So I'd ask you to banish the thought that you have any ability to do it on your own. And of course, of course, this is made known to us through the work of Christ. For we have the amazing benefit of being able to read these Old Testament prophecies through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. Because as we come together as Christians, we are here together because we know that we cannot do it. And we certainly did not do it on the cross all those years ago. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and brought us back into that right relationship. None of us could have done that, only Christ. And what's more is perhaps this prophecy gives us a picture of what society could be, or at least of how God can make it. Our motto here at First Hamilton is transformed by the gospel, our city and world renewed. And I think this passage really kind of gets at the heart of what we are trying to communicate by that, is that this good news of God transforms us in each and every one of our hearts. And it is that same gospel, that same good news that we know when applied to our neighborhood, our city, our country, our world brings about renewal and restoration that makes things new, restored, bright and shining, fertile and full of celebration. And we perhaps still do have a role. Not perhaps, we definitely have a role to play in this. Because while we are not the ones who are inaugurating the work, starting it, making it happen, making it succeed, we are called to pursue the things of God. We are called to pursue justice and liberation. Just as God promises to break the cycle of suffering for his people oh so long ago, he does so still today. And he asks us to come alongside him. Just as God promises marriage to his people, a relationship that is emblematic of protection and love. So he calls us to pursue protection and love for the least of these in our society. And because God is concerned also with our physical daily needs, his promise of fertility in the land, he asks us to be concerned with food and shelter, that everyone has enough on their table, a bed to sleep in, a roof over their head, especially on these very cold Canadian days. God looks to see all of creation flourishing because his work, the work of Jesus Christ, it's cosmic in scope. It is so much bigger than any of us could imagine. Paul writes about this in, the, in Colossians. He says in Colossians 1, chapter 19, or sorry, Colossians 1, verse 19, 
He says, for God was pleased to have him, that is Christ, in all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christ's work of reconciliation, of making peace, it's far more than just between our souls and his. It is between us and each other, between us and creation, between God and creation. That which was separated, divorced through sin is being brought back together through peace and Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we actively pursue the things of God, pursue the justice, liberation, protection, food and shelter for all those in creation, we have to ask ourselves, does each and every choice that we make, because every choice we make matters, everything we do matters because of the scope of God's work. Everything matters. And so we have to ask ourselves, in everything we say and do, are we contributing to an ongoing cycle of suffering and oppression, or are we contributing to God's work to break free from that cycle of sin? Because we are asked to participate in it. We are asked to participate in this restoration and reconciliation work. Whereas Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read uh, here in verse 18, Actually, I'm going to start in verse 17, because it's great. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, and that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This peace, this ministry of restorative peace has been passed to you and to me, to each of us. And it is only by the power of the Spirit we can do something. So let us, as God is never idle, let us never be idle in our work to bring peace in this world. At the very least, we can all pray. Pray for deliverance. Pray for salvation. Pray for transformation in our society. But there are some practical things we can do that demonstrate that we are pursuing the things of God and seeking to bring about peace and restoration and transformation so that perhaps our city can be a city sought after, a city in which God delights. We can advocate for affordable housing, for a basic living wage, guaranteed income, for indigenous rights, for better city planning so that all have access to good food, for environmental protection. You can write to your MP, your MPP, your city councillor. You can reach out to them and tell them what you think peace looks like in our city. If you need a place to start, the Office of Social Justice, a part of the CRCNA, is a great place to start with so many good podcasts and articles and resources, as well as pre-written letters if you don't quite know what to say. There's no shortage of opportunity in our city, in our communities, 
For there is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of need. But God has made it clear that he is promised and committed to renewal and restoration, to bring peace to all of us, to bring peace to our world. And he's invited you and me to participate in that. And while we're certainly not building the new Jerusalem as we see it, God is at work building it, preparing it, and anticipating that when Christ comes again, this new city will stand as a shining beacon for all of us to see. And this is good news. This is the good news that Christ came to bring, that the work is done, the work of salvation is done, the work of restoration continues, and we have an opportunity to participate. Let us come together with God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that it is not by our ability that we are brought out of exile from our sin, that you made all the moves on our behalf, even sending your Son to die on the cross for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have accomplished great things for us. And even still, as in the midst of a pandemic, we cry out for deliverance from our situation, we know that you are ceaselessly at work. God Almighty, I pray that you move in each of our hearts and show us how we might participate in this restoration, this renewal, how we might contribute to the ministry of reconciling peace. For you have equipped each and every one of us with good and great gifts to effect wondrous change in our world so that your creation, once again, can be a place of peace, fertility, and celebration. God Almighty, we can only accomplish this through you by the strength of your Spirit, and we commit to you. Amen.